You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Mark, chapter 6, as we continue our sermon series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. And in our story today, we're looking at something very unusual. We're looking at a story that all four gospel writers talk about. This is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is rare. As a matter of fact, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle performed by Jesus that all four gospel writers mention, besides the resurrection. Of course, they all mention that, but outside of that, this is it. Therefore, we'll pull some other helpful details from the other accounts to help flesh things out. And then starting next week, God willing, we'll jump over to the Gospel of John. We'll talk about what happens immediately afterwards, which is Jesus' miracle of walking on water. And then after that, John's going to give us something that the other Gospel writers don't give, which is a record of Jesus' teaching on the meaning of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So we're going to spend the better part of May talking about this miracle and this message. It's that big of a deal, and it's that important. There's a reason why God told this story four times in the Bible. In the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 is a message that is of the utmost urgency for us. In fact, it's a matter of life and death. We'll see that more clearly in the weeks ahead when we consider John's account. So today, we're just going to scratch the surface of this. It's just an appetizer, but I promise we'll dig in more as we move forward this month. So, if you would stand with me, we like to stand as we read God's Word to recognize that this is the Word of God as a way of showing respect and reverence for His Word and the authority of His Word. We'll read Mark chapter 6 together. We'll start at verse 30. So, we're picking up right where Pastor Steve left off last week, verse 30, and we'll read on down through verse 44. Mark writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all of the surrounding towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away and go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces 
and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, I come into this pulpit this morning very needy of you, very needy of your supply, very aware that you have called me to do something for the next 45 minutes, something that is impossible to give people your word. And I can't do that on my own. I need your help, and I need your strength, and I need your provision. Father, there are many who are in this room this morning who are coming feeling broken and needy, like like just not knowing how they're even going to make it through the rest of the day. Father, I pray that this would be a time where they would receive feeding and nourishment from Christ, strength and encouragement. I can't do that, but you can. Your Holy Spirit can. And so, Father, I pray that in the next few minutes, you would work through a very weak, bumbling, foolish preacher, and that you would work in the ears of weak and needy people who are listening, and that you would do a work, that you would speak to us, that we would hear, that we would be nourished, that we would be satisfied. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The prayer of John the Baptist... The heart's desire of that great prophet. Do you remember what it was when the followers of John complained to John that fewer and fewer people were coming to be baptized by him, and instead they were going over to be baptized by Jesus, and they were upset because the spotlight was shifting away from John and on to Jesus? Do you remember what John's response was? He wasn't upset. He was joyful, and he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. That was the desire of John's heart. And in last week's sermon that Pastor Steve preached, we saw that God gave John the desire of his heart by allowing a tyrant to throw John into prison and eventually cut off his head. Don't feel sorry for John. He's been in heaven now for 2,000 years, and I I think he's doing just fine. I promise you, he has no regrets, and he is reveling, even as we speak, in the joy of his master. He's not upset about this. The ministry of John was all about pointing to Jesus, It was all about a gradual decreasing of himself and a growing increase of Jesus as the spotlight is put more and more on Jesus. And he got the attention of Israel. And he said, it's not me, it's that man that you need. And when John accomplished his mission, God took him home, took him out of that dark dungeon in Herod's palace, and took him straight to the throne room of heaven to God's side, the one at whom's right hand our pleasures forevermore. So now John is off the scene, he's off the stage, and now it's Jesus. And the spotlight is on him totally. All eyes are on him like never before. And in the story today, Jesus now faces what's probably the biggest crowd 
of his entire ministry. He's on the stage. He's on the platform. Spotlight's on him. People are hanging on his every word and action. This was the modern world. He would, he would be surrounded by a sea of reporters and flashing bulbs and video cameras rolling, microphones in his face. The question is to him, Jesus, John the Baptist, your forerunner, your cousin, your beloved partner in the ministry is gone. What does this mean? What's your response? Everybody's watching. What is the most important thing you want the world to know, Jesus? What message do you have for us? And the response of Jesus on the heels of the execution of John the Baptist is stunning. He makes bread. He offers a banquet that satisfies In our text today, I want us to consider at least three things that I hope will help you to see and savor and enjoy and treasure Jesus more. That's the goal of every sermon that we preach at Harbin's. It's not just about filling your head with information. It's about helping you to love Jesus more, be satisfied by him more. There's three things I want us to consider this morning. The first thing that I want us to consider in this text I want us to consider the compassion of Jesus. What's interesting about this story is that though the day ends with thousands of people rallying around Jesus and shouting out in enthusiasm, ready to pledge their allegiance to him, we, we, we see that most specifically in John's account, which we'll get to in the weeks to come. That's how the day ends. That's not how the day begins. Instead, Jesus begins the day planning on doing the exact opposite, on being alone. He's planning on a time of of isolated solitude with just him and his 12 disciples. Look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. The agenda is not work, it's rest. And the intention is that he and this small band of disciples, they have a period of R&R, a period where they could recharge their batteries. Let's remember where we are in the flow of the Gospel of Mark. A lot's been going on. Jesus and, and the apostles have been working nonstop, traveling around for days and days, preaching and healing and casting out demons. It would have taken a physical toll on them. And then you add to that the emotional toll of the execution of John the Baptist. It's been a draining, exhausting time. As a matter of fact, look down at the last half of verse 31. Jesus tells them to rest for a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They didn't even have time to sit down for a meal. And so with all of this, Jesus recognizes that rest would be good for he and his disciples. And so, verse 32, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. That's a good plan. When you're tired, get away from it all. That's not how it quite works out, though. Verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So word gets out about Jesus, and you've got a multitude rushing after them. They're desperate to see Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm really tired, when I'm really worn out, when I'm really drained after just giving and giving and giving and giving to people, and when I lay my head down on that sofa, and suddenly the phone rings, 
and it's somebody on the other line asking me to do something for them, can I just confess to you that sometimes my attitude is not the greatest? It's not always joyful. It's not always cheerful at yet another opportunity to serve. Maybe, maybe all of y'all are more spiritual than me and you can't relate to what I'm talking about. But sometimes my reaction is less than best. A contrast that to Jesus' reaction in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He sees the crowd of people, people who need healing, people who need encouragement, people who need direction, people who need hope. And the text says that Jesus' response is compassion. It's an interesting word uh, in, the, in, in the Greek text. That word is only used a handful of times in the New Testament. Every single time it's about Jesus. And, and, and that word gives the idea of, of being so moved that you actually have a physical response to it. You're just you're feeling something in your gut. Have you ever been so emotionally moved that you, you feel even a, maybe a pain in your gut? Over the, this is the kind of compassion and, and, and deep feeling that Jesus has towards the people. And why specifically does he have compassion on them? It says so. It says why. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Those words of sheep... And shepherd have deep Old Testament connotations. God often described his people as sheep. And what do we know about sheep? They're vulnerable. They need guidance. They need a leader. They need a good shepherd to care for them and to nourish them and to lead them into safe green pastures and to protect them from savage beasts that would ravage them. If sheep, if a sheep doesn't have a shepherd, what's going to happen to that sheep? It's going to die. It's not going to make it. It's going to get lost or eaten or fall into a pit and can't get out. Sheep without shepherds don't last long on their own. And people without God don't last long on their own. And as the Old Testament story progresses, you see God raising up men, shepherds, to look after his people. Some of them are okay. None of them are perfect, and many of them turn out to be totally corrupt, hurting the sheep instead of helping them, abusing the sheep, taking advantage of them instead of serving them. In Ezekiel chapter 4, God gives a stinging indictment against the shepherds of Israel, and then he gives a remedy, a solution for the problem. He says, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I'll bring back the strayed. I'll bind up the injured. I'll strengthen the weak. I'll feed them in justice. God says, enough of the corrupt shepherds. I'm coming down personally. I will be the good shepherd and give the people exactly what they need. And here comes Jesus. And as much as Jesus would appreciate rest, as much as he would appreciate a time of solitude, what does Jesus do instead? He considers the needs and interests of others ahead of his own, unlike the false corrupt shepherds. He's more interested in ministering to their needs as opposed to his needs being ministered to. 
He sees this sight of people. He's deeply moved. And Jesus, the God shepherd of Ezekiel 34, cannot turn them away. He's moved by compassion. He cannot help but minister to them. Text says in Mark 6:34 that he begins to teach them many things. That's interesting. The first description of Jesus' compassion that Mark gives you is not that he healed their sick, though we learn from the Gospel of Matthew that that was going on. And, and, and the first description of Jesus' compassion is not that he feeds them bread, though that's coming. Instead, the first thing Mark associates with Jesus' compassion is that Jesus teaches the people. And Luke's gospel specifically tells us that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And part of the teaching of the kingdom would have to do with entrance into the kingdom, which happens through repentance and faith in Jesus. So, in essence, Jesus, he sees this multitude, and he's preaching about himself to the people, and the scriptures tell us that that is compassion. Yes, Jesus met physical needs, but compassion is more than meeting physical needs. There are Christians and there are churches today that emphasize what's known as the social gospel. And for them, Christianity is all about meeting physical needs. We're going to build hospitals. We're going to provide clean water to this village. We're going to give food to the homeless. And with some Christians, that becomes the essence of Christianity. That becomes what the gospel is. And yet, if all you do is heal sick people, and if all you do is give food to the poor, And if all you do is build hospitals, people will appreciate it, they will think you're awesome, and then they will die and go to hell if they don't hear the gospel. Is that compassion? We see Jesus meeting physical needs. He doesn't doesn't deny the body. He doesn't think those things are unimportant. And we have the New Testament exhorting us to remember the poor, to care for widows and orphans in their affliction. But meeting physical needs is not the gospel. Instead, it's an overflow, an implication of the gospel. It's a demonstration that we've been changed by the gospel and that God's love is in our hearts. But with that said, the priority is the teaching. The priority is the spiritual needs of the multitudes. Even the feeding of the 5,000, while that's meeting a physical need, even that is actually a, an illustration Jesus uses to teach an urgent spiritual reality. We'll see that later on. Jesus sees a multitude of people desperate for spiritual nourishment, and he's moved to compassion. Let me ask you this. When you see a world full of unbelievers, what's your reaction Is your your first instinct to rage against unbelievers? To to pour down condemnation on them? Do you have a bitter hatred towards unbelievers who are taking the country in a direction away from God? Do you get on the internet, on Facebook, just rant and rave about all these people who are doing all these terrible things and you're dropping the hammer on them? Is that your instinct? Is your demeanor towards unbelievers one of antagonism and hostility? You know, sometimes some professing Christians are more, are more like Jonah than like Jesus. Remember Jonah? What was Jonah's reaction to God's wrath on sinners? He loved it. 
It was entertainment for him. He was excited about the prospect of God destroying the city of Nineveh in judgment. He's sitting on top of that hill with a first row seat waiting for the fireworks. And then he's mad at God because God shows mercy. Some of you in this room may see yourself in Jonah. And all of us in this room need to identify more with Christ. And oh, how I long for Harbin's church to more and more be moved with compassion to the point of grief, even physical pain in your gut as we contemplate the world at large as lost. As, we, as when we see our friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus, we see them wandering like sheep without a shepherd. The Bible exhorts us to be imitators of God. And so let our text today move us to ask God for forgiveness, for, first for our lack of concern for the lost and our lack of compassion when we refuse to tell others about Jesus. And simultaneously, let this text amaze us and thrill us at the sight of such a loving such loving compassion in the person of Jesus. This kind of compassionate God is your God. So there is the compassion of Jesus, but we also see the, the testing of Jesus. The testing of Jesus. Not that Jesus is being tested, but that he is doing the testing. He is giving the exam, so to speak. So Jesus has been teaching all day, and the people have been hanging on his every word, And it's getting darker and darker. And verse 35 says, When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, we become so familiar with this story. Reading it with Western 21st century eyes that we tend to miss more than we get. If there's anything we take for granted in the modern Western world and wealthy suburban Atlanta, it's the availability and the abundance of food. And it's not just the availability and the abundance of food, it's also the ease by which we acquire the food. After church, it'll be lunchtime, and if you want, you can drive to a number of places within 15 or 20 minutes of this place, and you can talk to a metal box outside your car window. And then you can pull up a few yards to another window, and in two minutes they hand you several bags of food, several meals worth. That would have been incomprehensible to anyone in the ancient world. You can go to Kroger or Publix, and there there are entire aisles just dedicated to bread, and not just one kind of bread. You've got white bread and wheat bread and oat bread and multi-grain bread, and potato bread, and Hawaiian bread, and rye bread, and now you even have gluten-free bread. Who knew? The list goes on and on and on, and you can walk into that store and in two minutes walk out with loaves of bread for you and your family. We live in in a way that the majority of the people who have ever lived would have no concept of. For the people of Jesus' day, the preparation of food, the bringing forth of bread was a long, tedious, and laborious task. There there had to be somebody in every household who would be virtually full-time making and preparing the food, hours upon hours upon hours of work. They had no food processors. 
They had no microwave ovens. They had no refrigeration. The only preservative they had was salt. And if the person who was making the food was sick and unable to work, you wouldn't eat. If there was an interruption in the day that postponed the making of food, that's a problem. There's only so many hours in the day, you can't speed up the process. And so you'll just go hungry for the night. Their very lives depended on this laborious daily process every day. And now the people are here in a desolate place and there just couldn't be any quick remedy to the problem. And the disciples realize this. Verse 35. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. The disciples are getting a little nervous about this. Because they're facing a lot of hungry people. Your Bible heading might call this story the feeding of the 5,000. That's a misnomer. Mark says in verse 44 that those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. 5,000 men. That's just the number of men on hand. Matthew's account of this story tells us that those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So when you throw in wives, you throw in single women... You throw in children, you can have what? 15,000, 20,000 people? This is a massive crowd. Disciples are looking at the crowd. The sun is starting to sink now down in the west. It's dinner time. People starting to get hungry. It's not hard to understand why the disciples are getting a little nervous. And Jesus' response cracks me up. It's hilarious. Jesus' response doesn't ease their concern. It actually amplifies it. Look at verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. I think that's absolutely hilarious. Can you imagine the look on the disciples' face when Jesus says that? What? Are you serious? What are you talking about? You want us to meet this need? Let's be clear now. Jesus is not not playing games. I mean, I find this somewhat humorous, but he's not telling jokes here. He's not cutting up. He means this. So what's Jesus doing? Here again is where a gospel harmony comes in handy, where we can get some other eyewitness accounts to flesh in the details. The Apostle John gives us some more details in his gospel. Look at what it says in in John 6, and I'll put this up on the screen for, for your convenience. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus isn't playing a joke on the disciples. This is exam time. He's testing them. There's something that they're supposed to learn in all of this. Text says Jesus already has in mind what he's going to do. So why doesn't he just do it? Why why doesn't Jesus just immediately say, Hey, Philip, hey, disciples, don't worry about this. I got this. He he doesn't do that. Why, Why does he instead tell the disciples to feed them? In giving the disciples this task to do, Jesus is reminding the disciples of their role and their purpose. He's reminding disciples in this room today of your role and your purpose, and your purpose is to compassionately serve and to minister to others in Jesus' name. 
The purpose of all disciples is to serve in such a way that will bring and point people to Jesus. This was a lesson that the disciples had to learn more than once. There there are several times in the Gospels where those in need come to Jesus and the disciples' response is, send them away. So, for example, in Matthew 15, you've got a desperate Canaanite woman coming to Jesus, pleading with him to heal her demon-oppressed daughter. And what's the disciples' response? Send her away, for she's crying out after us. This is, this is annoying. What's she doing? Go away. Or you look at Mark chapter 10. You've got parents bringing their kids to Jesus, wanting ministry from him. And do you remember the disciples' reaction? They rebuke the people. No, no, no. Don't, don't bother the master about this. It's just kids. And now here in the wilderness, in a desolate place, the multitudes are coming to Jesus. And the disciples say, send them away. Let me tell you something. If somebody wants to come to Jesus, don't you ever stop them. Don't you ever discourage that. There's a reason why when you got saved, that God left you on this planet and didn't immediately kill you and take you to heaven. And that reason is so that you can help people come to Jesus. That's your role. That's your purpose. That's why you exist, for you to decrease, for him to increase, so that by your decreasing and by his increasing in your life, people will see Jesus and will flock to him. Disciples are still learning this lesson. They see the multitudes as a problem, not as people. People who desperately needed what Jesus had to offer. Jesus expects his disciples to serve and to minister in his name so that people are pointed to Christ. He says, you give them something to eat. And the disciples say, no way. That's not happening. Verse 37 They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? You know how much a denarii is? Denarius? It's a day's wage. Think about how much you make in a day. Multiply that by 200. Disciples are calculating that it'll be about that much money just to get a tiny portion for everyone. No one is carrying around 200 denarii in their wallets. So they can't afford to feed the people. They start scrounging around to see if they can find some food. Verse 38, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Now again, John's gospel gives us some more detail. It says that one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? That's not a lot for 20,000 people. And it's actually less than you think. Sometimes people ask, what in the world is a boy doing with five loaves of bread? That's a lot of bread for one kid. I even heard somebody once suggest that maybe this boy was a little entrepreneur. And he had all this extra bread and he's just going to sell it. Just hawking bread to to the crowd to make a few bucks. Set up a little concession stand or something. Part of the problem is that when we think of bread, we, we, we tend to think of a, of a loaf of, of Wonder Bread. Or something like that that we get from the store. But these five barley loaves were little, small, round things, kind of like pita bread. And the fish weren't big old king salmon. They would have been like small sardines. That's enough to sustain one boy for an evening. Maybe. 
Maybe not some of you teenagers in here. That's all he's got. Uh, Apparently, there was one mom in all of Galilee that was thinking ahead and packed him lunch. Nobody else was thinking. Nobody else has got anything. So the situation is desperate. you got 15, 20,000 people. They've got no food. It's getting late. They scrounge up two sardines and five slices of pita bread. And Jesus turns to them and says, you give them something to eat. And the disciples are thinking, that's impossible. And that's precisely the point. Which brings us to our third reflection, and that is the provision of Jesus. Verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. He is commanding the disciples to serve and to minister, but he is showing them that they cannot do it in their own strength, with their own resources, in their own power. It is the power of Jesus that multiplies the food. The provision comes from the hand of Jesus. And the disciples simply become agents of the distribution. Text says Jesus multiplies the bread, gives it to the disciples, and they in turn give it to the people. Jesus puts the disciples in an impossible situation on purpose to teach them that they will never be able to do anything for Christ apart from Christ. Later on, Jesus tells them, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Still later on, Jesus gives the disciples an even more daunting task to go into the world, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and proclaim Christ to the nations so that men might be saved. And they will not be able to do that in their own strength. They will only be able to minister in the strength that God supplies with the resources that he gives. This is an urgent lesson for the disciples then. It's an urgent lesson for you now. Some of you in this room are in what feels like impossible situations. Situations in which you you know that you are supposed to serve God and serve others. Maybe it's a gospel opportunity with a lost person. Maybe it's loving somebody who is not lovable. I bet you have somebody in your life that's like that. Maybe it's being a godly husband or wife or mom or dad, and you're thinking about these situations that Jesus has called you into, and you are thinking, I can't do this. This is impossible. There is no way that I can do this, God. I, I don't have the ability, the gifting, the experience, the maturity, whatever it may be, I don't know how I can, this situation you've called me in, God, I don't even know how I can make it through the next three hours, let alone do this thing for the next three months or three years or more. I can't do it. I struggle with this in my own life. There are few things that God has called me to do that are as difficult as being a pastor. There are so many responsibilities, so many Burdens between counseling and discipling and leading and administering and preaching. There are many times when I think, I can't, I can't do this. 
I'm a bumbling fool, God. And I know many of you agree with that assessment. I'm a bumbling fool. I'm supposed to get up here in the pulpit and speak for 45 minutes, and someone is supposed to walk away spiritually fed and nourished. Yeah, right, God. I can't do this. And God speaks into your situation and speaks into my situation in the same way He speaks into the disciples' situation with the feeding. You can't do it, but I can do it. That's Jesus' message. And therefore, you will do it as I equip and give you all the resources that you need to fulfill whatever I have called you to. And so we have this word of encouragement from the Apostle Peter. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Love that. God's called you to serve. Many of you right now are in various serving roles. Never forget that you are to serve by the strength that God supplies. The disciples freaked out because they're trying to serve. They're thinking of serving in their own strength, with their own resources and their own abilities, and they can't do it, and they are exactly right. One who serves by the strength that God supplies. That's the key. Why? What goal? In order... That in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we serve, we minister in the strength that God supplies. And when that happens, He gets the glory because it's so obvious that whatever was accomplished was accomplished through God because there's no way you can do it. You can be sure that the disciples aren't getting any glory for passing out food baskets. Everyone knows where this food is coming from. Disciples are serving. They're doing what Jesus has told them to do, but their serving puts the spotlight on Jesus who has provided. In their service, the disciples decrease. Jesus increases. That's exactly how ministry should be. And so the disciples are passing out this food... And look what the text says in verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Not only do the people eat, but the people are satisfied. They have enough. And not only are they satisfied, but there remain twelve full baskets of bread and fish. They have more than enough. Now, what's the point of this? The day begins with Jesus teaching and the day ends with Jesus feeding. But the purpose of the feeding is not simply utilitarian. It's not simply to fill stomachs. The feeding is teaching something as well. Jesus began the day teaching the people about the kingdom of God. Teaching the people that ultimately what they need for life is Him. And that's exactly how Jesus ends the day. With an illustration of that truth. Is it not interesting... That Jesus waits so long before feeding the people. Jesus could have done something much differently. Jesus could have provided food in advance. Jesus could have used his power to prepare a banquet that was actually already there waiting for the people when they arrived so that no one would have to worry about it. Jesus could have said, hey, okay, everybody wait. We're going to get to some teaching, but first, let's get some food. Let's do that. That's not what he does. 
He could have organized a team of cooks and caterers and lined up everything beforehand. Instead, Jesus delays. And he lets the disciples get to a point of near panic before meeting the need. When we get to John's account later on in the weeks to come, the multitude correctly connects Jesus' miracle of the feeding with the Old Testament. The Old Testament story when after God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness. They are in a lonely and desolate place. There is no food and people get desperate to the point that they're convinced they're going to die hunger. God lets them get to that point of hunger on purpose. Does that seem mean to you? That God would deliberately put them in this desperate situation? Why would he do that? God's not being mean. Instead, God is lovingly teaching them something. Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The point of God's testing in the wilderness is to teach them something that runs contrary to our instincts. Our instincts tell us that there are many things that we need in our life more than God, like food. And that at the end of the day, we can do whatever we want, but we live by bread alone. And now here's Jesus. He comes along. And he is in a lonely, desolate place with the multitude. They're in the wilderness. He does not provide food in advance. He delays. He lets them go hungry for a little while. And then he feeds them to show them that man shall not live by bread alone but by the Word of God. The Gospel of John tells us that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus says that it is this Word, namely Himself, that the people must depend on more than anything else for life. Later on, we'll look at John chapter 6, where Jesus is going to expound on the meaning of the miracle. The purpose is not about physical bread, ultimately. The meaning of the feeding is not, follow me and I'll be your sugar daddy. No. Instead, when the people ask Jesus for more physical bread in John chapter 6, he turns to them and says, I'm the bread. I didn't come to give bread. I came to be bread. I came for you to feed on me. To get life from me. To be sustained by me. To be satisfied by me. We, as fallen humans, tend to put our hope for life and satisfaction in anything else besides Jesus. Anything else besides Jesus. We put our hope in food. In jobs. In houses. In sex. In relationship. In human approval. In money. And we live in such a way that we think if we don't get those desires met, we'll die. We won't make it. Our lives are over. So the spotlight is on Jesus. Cameras are in his face. Microphones are at his mouth. John the Baptist 
is dead. Jesus has the biggest platform of his ministry yet. And what is the most urgent message that he can give to the world in this moment? It's this. That ultimately, your life is not bound up in those other things. If you want your life to be bound up in those other things, good luck. You'll perish. Instead, turn to me. Depend on me. Be sustained by me. And you'll live. You'll be satisfied. You will have more than enough. You need bread three times a day? Well, you need me every hour. Minute by minute. Second by second. He says, come to me and you will never hunger. The deepest longings of your soul will be met in me. You shall not live by bread alone. You shall live by the word of God, who is Jesus Christ himself. The feeding of the 5,000 is really a microcosm of the gospel story. In the gospel, what do we have? We have a God who sees a multitude of humanity, a multitude of sinners who are scattered and broken and bound in slavery to sin and death, a group of people who, because of their sin, deserve only the eternal wrath of God, a group of people who are in an impossible situation, utterly helpless, who cannot do anything to help and save and provide for themselves. And that sight moves God the Father to compassion. Compassion to such a degree that he sends his only son into the world. Is that not what the Apostle John tells us? God so loved the world that he sent his son. And Jesus Christ comes and he becomes our provision. He dies on the cross He suffers the wrath of God in place of sinners so that all who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation comes at his hand, in his hand alone. This is God's message to the world. Come to Jesus. Believe, repent, be saved, be satisfied, receive life. Stay tuned. We'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this word that you have for us is a word that is relevant to everybody in this room, whether they are believers or unbelievers. Oh, Father, for those of us who are believers, please forgive us. We're living our lives in such a way where we are, we are chasing after other things for, for, for life and for sustenance. and we, we live like the world. And we embrace these other pleasures and treasures outside of you and we forsake you, the fountain of living waters. Forgive us for that, Lord. And raise, in our, raise up in our minds and in our hearts an ever-growing, ever-increasing awareness that it's not simply that we come to salvation and, 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 and receive that immediate life and that immediate satisfaction, but that for the believer, the, 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 the need to be sustained by you continues forever. Not just on day one of salvation. We need you every hour. We need you every moment to do everything that you have called us to do. Forgive us for our arrogance and our complacency and our prayerlessness. We don't pray because we don't believe that we need you. Forgive us for all of those things and thank you for your mercy. And Father, I pray for those in this room, anybody in this room, 
who has not yet received Christ as Lord and Savior, bound up in other things, like a, like a wandering sheep wandering around in the wilderness, and there are wolves all around about to pounce. God, if there is such a sheep in here right now, save them. Rescue them from the jaws of the enemy and bring them to yourself that they might receive life and be brought into your fold where there is safety and protection. God, thank you that you are not the kind of God that is sometimes portrayed in mythology. A God like Zeus who just is capricious and uncompassionate and without mercy and just explodes in irritable anger at the slightest little thing. That's not you, God. We know that you you do get angry at sin. We do know that you will judge sin and sinners who don't repent. And yet that's not the whole story. You are a God who sees lost people and you are moved to compassion. Thank you for that, God, and give us that same kind of compassion. Thank you that you're a good shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen.